Welcome to FinTech Brews and News, brought to you by Central Payments and Falls FinTech. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. Founders, co-founders, payments professionals, and, well, just people who love brews. This is a place to get a behind-the-scenes look at unique partnerships and ways to bridge the financial gap between banking, startups, and the entire fintech industry. Whether it's a beer, or coffee, or something else, there's certain to be a brew in every episode. After all, how do we function in this space without it? Each episode, you're sure to take away some good stuff going on in the financial technology space. So without further ado, let's grab a brew. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of FinTech Brews. Uh, I'm Trent Sorby, the CEO here at Central Payments. Um, I'm very happy today um, to uh, to be leading a discussion on the regulatory world with which um, all of us in FinTech operate. I'm joined by um, three very much subject matter experts. Dan uh, leads a venture capital firm called Nevcot Ventures. Uh, Dan, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. And then, uh, of course, uh, Eric Goldberg is with us. Eric is a partner at the Ackerman Law Firm. Um, and uh, Eric uh, is a certainly a well-respected uh, fintech uh, compliance regulatory attorney. So, uh, Eric, thank you for joining us today as well. Thanks for having me, having me here, Trent. I appreciate it. And then finally, uh, Jessica. Uh, Jessica Drew is with us today. Jessica is general counsel at Central Payments. She joined us in August. Uh, Jessica comes uh, primarily from a banking background. And so, uh, Jessica, tell, uh, tell everybody a little bit more about you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the last couple of decades, I've been involved in um, three different banking opportunities. Uh, the first one, I uh, started at MetaBank and was there for about eight or nine years. And uh, I, I had the pleasure of watching the banking industry evolve through that, the payments industry. Um, and then I went to traditional banking for a little while uh, and uh, found my way back to uh, our, our fintech area here, which is way more fun than when, traditional banking. Yeah, once you get payments and fintech in your blood, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard it to get it out. So right. uh, awesome. Well, let's just take a minute here um, and kind of give a little background on everyone. Let's go back the reverse order. Eric, give everybody just a little bit of information on your background um, and how you kind of found yourself in, in this particular space. So I been working in consumer finance for most of my legal career, which is getting to be longer than I like to admit, um, and started off doing a lot of consumer finance litigation. Then there was this new agency created called the CFPB, which I am sure we will talk about quite a bit today and where I first met Dan. And I went there in right shortly after the mortgage crisis uh, as a regulatory attorney, where all but me and one other person were working on mortgage rules. So the rest of us had to figure out what was going on in the payment space and led the development of, of rules around remittance transfers and prepaid accounts, which I'm sure is near and dear to your hearts at, at Central Payments. I left the CFPB about four years ago to join Ackerman. We're a, a national law firm. We have about 70 lawyers that do consumer finance. I lead the work we do with fintech. We work a lot with um, startups, more established fintech players, issuing banks, banking as a service providers, sort of the range of characters that you come across in the fintech space. And uh, thanks again for, for having me here. Yeah, wonderful. Dan, give everybody a little background on you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in the past decade, I've been, you know, uh, living and breathing fintech or financial services. So uh, I, I, as Eric, Eric mentioned, he and I worked together at the CFPB. I was a uh, 
was serving as a senior advisor to the first director, um, Director Cordray. And my main portfolio was to be the, the, the bureau's, you know, you know, eyes and ears for, for fintech. Um, so really, you know, I, I now recall that my, my days at there, I, I spent countless hours flying from, you know, Dallas airport to uh, SFO on those, uh, you know, cross continent flights. I really find myself loving fintech, you know, um, uh, and uh, left the agency in 18, I've been doing angel investing on, on the side and also uh, advising uh, fintech clients on, on policy, regulatory uh, issues in, and at times on, on their business strategies. And uh, about 18 months ago, I met my partner, Eric, uh, the other Eric, not this Eric, um, and uh, we formed this fund, Nefco Ventures, and uh, our focus is really, you know, early stage fintech and insured tech. Uh, our sweet spot is... Uh, pre-seed to up to series A, but we also at times make uh, opportunistic uh, late stage, growth stage investments. Uh, glad to be here. Very happy to have all three of you here. Now today's conversation, uh, and it, we, we do call this FinTech Brews, and if there's ever a day that I wish we had a couple beers in front of us, it's, it's, for, <laughs> it's for this particular conversation. Unfortunately, it's early enough in the day um, that we don't. But um, today's conversation is about what we're kind of calling a regulatory reckoning. And I don't know if it, maybe that's a, a little bit melodramatic, but, um, I, I think anybody that's in payments and fintech, uh, recognizes that the last 12 months or so, we certainly have seen an uptick in the attention, um, that, um, the sector is getting from, geez, almost every, uh, regulatory agency that's out there from state regulators to the federal regulators, to the FTC, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think today, maybe to kick it off, I think it would be great to kind of work through the timeline and get an idea of what we've seen out of some of these regulators um, that are particularly um, focused on fintech. I think we'll start with probably the two regulators that um, that we've heard the most from here recently, the OCC and the CFPB. Um, Dan, why don't you kind of take us through in your mind, uh, and you, of course, both you and Eric come from the CFPB. But take us through in your mind what's captured the CFPB's attention and, and why we hear them talking about fintech uh, more than maybe we have uh, in the last few years. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, you know, so when, when Eric and I were at the CFPB, fintech sort of started to sort of come of age, if you will. So uh, you saw some uh, large players being formed, growing, like SoFi, Lending Club, Prosper. But I think in the last couple of years, this is sort of post what I call rich, post rich quarter CFPB era. Uh, fintech has really, really become a a uh, a force to be recognized. So, um, so the kind of risks that uh, fintechs, I, I think the risks with fintech has not really changed so much over the years. But I think given the the, the growth of the fintech sector, all of a sudden those risks are brought up front and center from regulatory uh, perspective. So I think that's why we see lots of uh, attention being paid to fintech. You know, in the day, in the earlier days, people will, will say, let's study, let's let's try to understand. Now it's about, okay, I think we have studied enough. Let's actually take a closer look. Is there, is there something we can do to either, you know, to, to, uh, to manage the risks that the fintech is posing and also try to, you know, foster the good aspect that fintech can can bring to consumers and uh, and to the financial system. One of the things I've seen, um, particularly out of Director Chopra, um, really since money 2020 in October, we start to hear this term that seems to go in ebbs and flows in this space around uh, the old rent-a-bank term. And uh, the, the director seems to have dusted that term off uh, here in the last 12 months. And it is a term that comes up more and more. Um, in relation to fintech relationships with banks. I'm curious, Eric, uh, 
how would you describe that particular arrangement that gives the, you know, what are the characteristics of an arrangement like that, that give uh, regulators, community groups, et cetera, heartburn? And how would you kind of draw the distinctions between, you know, a rent a bank, which certainly has a very negative connotation and, and real legitimate bank fintech relationships. Do you have an idea of, of where that line is, uh, in some form or fashion? Yeah, I think part of the problem is the line is sort of where is, is in different places for different people. And, and you mentioned the consumer groups. And I think to a large extent, they have the ear of the director on these things. So a lot of this Renabank stuff is, is not really a new issue. It goes back to people, you know, exporting interest rates out of certain states to avoid usury and all that. And certainly there's situations where that has had, you know, negative connotations and negative impact on consumers. A lot of what we see, though, is fintechs relying on a bank because it's not easy for them to issue a Visa or MasterCard because they're not a bank, right? And they want to offer a product to consumers. It's not obvious to me how just offering a payment card to someone because you're not a bank and partnering with a bank to do that harms anyone. Where I think we've seen the CFPB not really be that clear. On the one hand, they don't want people, I think, taking advantage of these usury rules or taking advantage maybe of banks that aren't sophisticated enough to realize what they're doing. On the other hand, I think you keep hearing the director reference competition. Like every speech he gives, he mentions competition. And he comes from the FTC where antitrust was a really big deal. And if anything, I think if you gave him a truth serum, he'd say he really wants to sort of chip away at the big banks. And I think he realizes that the fintechs are helping him do that. Uh, on the other hand, fintechs are like any other business segment. There are some out there that are good and there's some out there that are not good. And I think the Bureau is, you know, you've seen them file some enforcement actions against some bad actors. And then in other areas, you know, whether in some of the newer fintech areas like earn wage access and buy now pay later, they've kind of hemmed and hauled a little bit where they're not exactly sure where, where it shakes out. So I think to, a long winded way of answering your question, you know, the rent bank is sort of a historical thing that he has the consumer group saying, you know, it's a bad thing people are, are getting harmed, but I think their investigations are not quite sure where that line draws is drawn. That's why you've seen like this deep dive into buy now pay later. You might see something similar into EWA coming up to try to figure out how that shakes out. Because on the other hand, there's certain things that the, the traditional players do that the Bureau certainly doesn't like. And if it knocks fintechs out, cuts fintechs off at the knees, like that's, that's not really helping anybody. That just empowers the incumbents. It does seem like, yeah, it, it, it does. And it does seem like there's sort of this, this triangle, if you will. Like at one point we, we know there's, um, there's a, a distaste for very, very large banks, right? That's, that's not anything new. I think there's also, you know, then we have real obvious bad actors, right? Just the, the, the slam dunk, horrible products that, you know, there's no question. I think the third, the third point might be what's coming now is big tech, right? I think there's a big apprehension around big tech um, and how that's going to change um, the consumer experience and, and all the, the issues around data security and privacy, et cetera, that go with that. I'm hoping um, that somewhere inside that triangle, uh, the rest of us can sort of operate. And, uh, and that's where I, you know, I'll be on my soapbox a lot during this conversation, I'm sure. But um, I, I hope uh, we can find a place to live inside, inside of that, uh, inside of that world. You know, Jessica, you come from the banking side of things and not the regulatory side of things. Um, I am curious, you know, your experience as you've kind of come through payments and you've come through as the CFPB emerges, how would you characterize from the banking side of things, uh, the way in which banks might be looking at fintech partners and having to balance the regulatory pressures that, that, that they feel um, every day? 
Sure, a couple of couple of things there. I think uh, before I left my my latest traditional banking uh, opportunity, I um, I listened to the leadership of the bank indicate that they were relatively scared of uh, the the fintech industry coming forward. It is a, an enormous uh, source of competition for them, so it's it's certainly something that uh, they are concerned about as it relates to growth, deposits, things like that. Um, other, other things to think about are the relationships with the small banks and their reliance on uh, banking as a service, uh, you know, relationships and whether, uh, whether that is going to be affected by increased regulatory scrutiny. Yeah, I think, I think there is an apprehension um, inside the banking community that, that, um, these relationships by by just simply a speech or an announcement are somehow inherently um, uh, significantly more risky um, than others. And I think, you know, I'd be curious on anybody's comments on this. And maybe, Dan, you're in the best position, you know, in the VC community. But to what degree do you think um, some of the very recent news coverage around crypto and the FTX experience and et cetera has, has put a cloud over FinTech, even for some of us that aren't involved in, in, in crypto, but sort of almost guilt by association tangentially in some form or fashion. Well, I think guilt by association probably is a very much a, uh, uh, accurate description of this. So I, I, I do think over the years, FinTech has somehow lost its luster, you know, from the earlier days, right? I think I, I, I don't recall which regulator actually recently talked about this, you know, which is that uh, uh, the, a lot of the promises FinTech has, you know, you know, uh, promised to, you know, to, to consumers, to regulators, to policymakers haven't really been delivered, you know, especially with regard to financial inclusion, uh, that sort of things. And I think there's some truth in it too, right? So I think what we have seen, frankly, you know, over the last 10 to 12 years, uh, the, the innovation really has been mostly happening on the on the on the edge on the surface. What I mean by that is uh, the products themselves haven't really changed, right? A loan is a loan, a credit card is a credit card, debit card is a debit card. May some debit cards may have high fees, low fees, uh, but they're debit cards, they're DDAs. Um, FinTechs have really done a very good job in terms of customer acquisition, in terms of creating a, a very user friendly, uh, smooth experience for consumers. But if you if you open the, the sort of the, the shining layer right veneer, what if you look inside, underneath, nothing has been really significantly changed. So I, I think you know uh, I mean part of the reason we, we are very still very very uh, optimistic about fintech from an investor's perspective is that we believe in the next ten to ten to twenty years we'll see more innovations really happening, what I call a fintech 2.0, 3.0, really inside. The, the core system, the 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 the, the pipes, the, the 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 connections, the engines that really power financial services. So I think, uh, with you know, obviously a lot of headwinds in the last twelve to twelve to eighteen months, especially recently with the with the FTX implosion, uh, fintech probably got a, a little bit of bad rap, and also obviously the public markets have not been helping. Right, we look at some of the very prominent fintechs that went IPO or SPAC last year. Uh, their valuation, their market cap has dropped, you know, more than 50 or even 70 percent. But I think this is temporary. We believe, you know, once the, you know, the interest, the inflation is tempered, uh, the interest rates are, are stabilized. 
uh, in the next three, four years, you know, once we can survive this winter, you know, we'll see another uh, 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 high growth uh, again in the fintech space. So you're predicting you're predicting a nice rebound, Dan. Is that what you're saying? I absolutely believe. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this business. <laughs> hey, Eric, quick question, because I think you're, you're probably about to go there, but I'll see if I can read your mind. Um, as we think about the repercussions of an FTX experience um, and some of the more public um, fintech related um, media stories, describe the pressure the bureau feels Um when the view is these weren't regulated, you should have been harder on these companies. How could you let it get this far? You know, describe the pressures and, and maybe the unintended consequences of that. Well, I think, you know, you, you talked a little bit, are people gonna be painted with a broad brush because of a few bad actors? I think that's sort of the invitation a regulator needs to, to look deeper. So you look at the FTX debacle is a good word for it. You know, they had a bank that issued some, they and you know, BlockFi, which also went bankrupt, had some pretty generic products that were issued uh, by a bank in connection with these companies. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on the other side about, you know, who's vetted, vetting FTX in the block five of the world, who's doing due diligence. And maybe the bank here did a great job, but I think it's certainly going to raise questions in people about how are these companies onboarded. We've seen, you know, there's been a couple of examples this summer of increased scrutiny from issuing partner banks from some of our clients. And, you know, we never really know what's provoking those questions, whether it's the regulator asking or whether it's the bank getting ready for the regulator to be asking, but I definitely think there's a, you see this a lot in regulation. There's a, you know, closing the barn doors once the cows have already escaped. I think I got that right. Um, and I, I think you're gonna see some of that now, you know, Congress is gonna be having a hearing on FTX and they're gonna be asking the regulators and they're gonna put a panel up there. And so I'm certain there's discussions now at the CFPB, you know, what can we do to prevent this? The challenge of course, is most of the issuing banks here are not re directly regulated by the Bureau. They're, they're less than $10 billion in assets. And, you know, you mentioned the OCC, you mentioned the CFPB, we've not really talked much about the FDIC or the Fed, and they've been relatively silent in a lot of these discussions over the last, however many months. And I think that, and some of the interactions we've had with some of those regulators have sort of shown that they maybe have not paid as close attention to this. So I, I do think, um, you know, there's going to be closer scrutiny there. You know, the FDIC chairman is getting, new chairman is getting new chairman, the same as the old chairman is getting confirmed, um, you know, in the coming weeks. And I think there's going to be attention on, on all of this now going forward. One of the things I hear all the time, and Jess, you've probably heard it too. Um, where, where's the easy regulator? Boy, the OCC has come out. They've been very um, outspoken. The CFPB has been very outspoken. Does that mean that the FDIC and the Fed are the easy ones? I know that's a dumb question, a big layup question, but how would you, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I, uh, I've worked for banks um, that have been regulated by the CFPB, the OCC, the FDIC, Federal Reserve Board. So um, I, I don't really want to call any of them out as uh, being e easier than others. Um, uh, you know, MetaBank was certainly uh, regulated by the OCC during a time where everything was evolving and the industry was learning um, and, and having a lot of lessons learned. So uh, I think as it relates to regulatory scrutiny, there's, there's a heavier emphasis from the OCC on payments than, you know, rather than the FDIC and Federal Reserve. And those banks too are generally your, your, your smaller banks. And so from a risk standpoint, they're not going to be as, as pronounced as 
you know, your national banks. So Jessica, picking up on, on your concept of learning, I'm going to take it over to Eric. Um, there are, there is an opportunity to learn from a regulatory action. Now I don't, I don't wish enforcement actions on, on anyone. Um, but I do believe, and we've seen it now, the very recent enforcement action with Blue Ridge Bank by the OCC went into great lengths, uh, uh, to discuss, uh, the types of bank partnerships that they believe banks should be looking for. And what are the characteristics of banks that are, excuse me, relationships that, that, uh, banks should shy away from? I, I guess, Eric, what, how would you characterize the, the, the enforcement action and what we can all learn from it? Well, one thing that's been challenging is sort of outside counsel to, clients on either side of these these bank partnership relationships is there has not been a lot of guidance to date on what how to set them up. And you, know, you talk to one bank and they say you need all these things and the client's like, well, that's expensive. So they talk to another bank and they just said, oh, sure, we'll onboard you in 60 days. And there's been a bit of a wild west out there because the regulators haven't given a lot, given a lot of guidance. And you know, on the one hand, regulation by enforcement is not great. We would rather get guidance in a non-enforcement matter because seems like someone there was the guinea pig or, or, or the, you know, the, the easy target. But the, the Blue Ridge settlement really gives out really clear guidance for what the OCC is looking for in these bank partnerships and what they, in, in their view, didn't find in, in place at Blue Ridge. And one is a third-party risk management program. The OCC has pretty old guidance at this point regarding, you know, banks' partnerships with third parties. It hasn't really been updated to reflect the new fintech environment other than some some tweaks here and there. And that is certainly an area they're looking on. They're also looking, you know, BSA, Bank Secrecy Act risk assessment to make sure that that's something that the partners are doing. I, I've seen in some cases where the bank will partner with the fintech, the fintech retains a third party to do their BSA reviews and no one, it's more of a check the box exercise and actually looking at what's going on in those risk assessments. And then the third you know, related is customer due diligence. You know, what is the fintech doing when they're onboarding new customers and is the bank aware of what's going on there? Or again, is it relying on maybe on a vendor or someone else and there's not really clear oversight or, or checking as to what's going on? And I already in, in the, that came out in early September, we've seen a lot of people trying to order their conduct based on what's outlined in that settlement. You know, one of the things I find um, particularly interesting when I look at these enforcement actions, because I agree with Eric, you can learn so much from them. Um, not just the Blue Ridge enforcement action, but then also the guidance, the bulletin the OCC put out. Um, I think it was back in August, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that. We see an added emphasis around the education, excuse me, the experience and the qualifications of the fintech partner. That's that's sort of a new phenomenon. I mean, do you think that um, the regulators have a view that, you know, you've got these fintechs are two guys in a garage, you know, that have two years out of college that are sitting, you know, spending all night coding on their computers. And, you know, is there a, do we have a, do we have a reputation or an image problem here? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, in the past, I, I actually have seen uh, come through uh, various vendor risk management programs, two guys working out of their parents' basement with a bicycle. So, um, you know, although it's not, it's certainly not the 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 norm, um, it, there may be a misconception that that is the case. Uh, there are so many startups that, you know, that, that are just uh, cutting their teeth on this. And so, um, 
I, I think there may be a misconception of that. I think that we would do ourselves a favor uh, to work with the regulators. I know that they have asked uh, for advice and participation from the industry uh, to, you know, to really provide them information about our industry, the the emphasis that we do already have on third-party risk relationships and oversight. And uh, I think that would do us a favor. We had, uh, we had Governor Bowman um, in our Falls FinTech Accelerator office here not that long ago, um, and she was gracious enough during a visit uh, here to Sioux Falls to you know, reach out to us and say, I want to spend some time and understand who these companies are that you're bringing through these early stage companies. What are their backgrounds? What are their experiences? Not from a, not from a regulation or enforcement standpoint, but just trying to understand the change in the types of um, professionals that are being involved in, in financial services and the way it is becoming much more technology focused. And I think what a great segue to Dan, who now, you know, is making a career out of finding the, the very best in early stage fintech companies and, and, and taking them to market. Dan, what are you seeing, um, in, in the market today around founders and the way in which founders are approaching not just the products and, that they want to build, but then the regulatory expectations that are evolving and, and, and are they, do they recognize those things? I mean, maybe the reputation problem problem is well-deserved. I'd be curious. I'd be curious of your thoughts as you, as you spend so much time with founders. Yeah, sure. So, um, so you know, if I can roughly divide, you know, the, the, our portfolio companies into two categories. So one category would be uh, those companies are offering a products that are sort of you know, consumer facing or serving SMBs. So, so instantly you see the, the, the regulatory requirement and potential scrutiny will be very much heightened. So pretty much everyone in that group, whether the founder or the CEO, founders, CEOs have any prior financial service background or not, you know, they, they, they tend to immediately think about, okay, so how, how do I make this work? So if they don't have the kind of expertise or experience, they would reach out to, you know, sometimes to investors or through their own networks to find, you know, um, a, a, a someone with compliance background or regulatory background. They definitely will very early on seek, um, you know, folks like Eric to, to, to help out. Um, so, and I think, I think if you're doing financial services, uh, you, you really need to take, compliance very, very seriously. It may not be your your top priori priority when you're small, when you just started out, but it should always always be you know in the background at least. And once you are at a stage where you need to find a issuing bank to to issue a card or or you know do DDA, then all of a sudden you see a lots and lots of requirements from the issuing bank. And sometimes you know there's a I think there is a culture shock frankly from the founder's perspective. This is something that uh, you know if you were your background was coding. That's something that you would never ever uh, expect or, or experience. But then you quickly realize, hey, this thing is not easy. This thing is not cheap. But in order for me to get, you know, from from A to B, I need to do all these things. I need to jump through these hoops. So, um, so, uh, and uh, and whether they like it or not, I think they they have to, you know, take compliance very very seriously. Now, the other category, obviously, are the are are the, are the companies that. Uh, they're in financial services, but then they're not really dealing. So it's more of a B two B, especially you know you know our our fund is very interested in, in investing in SaaS companies. So so they deal with another another kind of sort of you know uh, um, uh, compliance issue, uh, but the burden is much lower, right? So it's more of a data security, privacy, 
but uh, uh, and uh, you know SOC one, SOC two compliance. Um, uh, but for them, it's really trying to win the trust from their from their clients. Sometimes the clients are banks. Sometimes the clients are insurance companies. So they have also to cross a very very uh, to meet a very very high bar. So 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 either way, you know, I think if you are in financial services, offering a product that can you know. In, Generally speaking, you can invite a lot of criminals uh, to to it, right? Because because uh, it's people's money at risk. So you need to really treat compliance very very seriously. And I've never seen anyone that says I don't care about it. You know, I'm going to just go ahead and do it. Frankly, if someone comes to you with a kind of uh, attitude, you know, that's not a company that you want to invest in. The propensity, I think, oftentimes uh, having brought a bunch of founders through our fintech accelerator, I try to explain to them as as much as you want. Um, you cannot code around compliance and it's not meant to be, it's not their intention to, to try to ignore compliance, but I think they believe that there is a, a program, programmatic way, programmatic way in which um, you cannot have to think about compliance. Um, and we try to tell them that um, you're, you're forgetting the subjectivity in many cases that's associated with it. And, um, and so I, again, I don't, I've never encountered any that don't want to take it serious. I think for them, it's like, how come I can't program to it? And, uh, and I think that's a, that's an interesting situation. Dan, I'm going to stick with you because I think it's also relevant to talk about, you know, the current marketplace, certainly, uh, funding is uh, much more difficult, uh, now than it was a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, and then, so if you're an early stage company and, you know, you've, you've raised some angel or seed money, you know, you can't go out there very easily and hire Eric. I mean, we're one of Eric's clients. I can assure you from the bills I get, he is not an inexpensive uh, legal resource. Um, so I'm just teasing you, Eric. Um, but I think, I, how do you tell startup companies to say, look, you, you got to spend money here. And they're like, look, I only have so much to spend. And, and, and this was a difficult, this is a very difficult time for me to go back to the well and try to raise more. It is a very, very, you know, difficult question to answer, frankly. And, and, and frankly, given the, 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 the quick change in, in the market, you know, um, there's, there are times we have to pass, you know, um, um, deals that otherwise will be very, very attractive, you know, if, if this was six, 10, you know, 12 months ago. Um, and, and so, I mean, I also work with Eric on, on, on a few deals together. Eric has been a great, Great partner, great, great, great friend, and and, and great lawyer. So, um, I think law firms, some law firms, they they, they structure um, 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 the uh, their engagements in a way that that, that are beneficial to uh, to early stage companies, so that uh, the bills are not too expensive, but uh, the, with the hope that if the company grows and scales, and uh, so so uh, so will the the legal fees uh, or engagement. Um, so. Um, so, but but I think one thing is very 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 clear. So I've never seen any any founder that 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 sort of you know that came to us and wanted to do something in financial services and say you know what we're not going to get any legal counsel because we cannot afford and uh, we just we just uh, we're just going to go ahead and do it. And frankly, I, I don't think it's just us. I think it's if anyone comes to 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 investor with that kind of uh, attitude or, or belief, you know, I think these guys probably will not be able to get any funding. Eric, what are you telling early stage companies that come to you and say, look, I really need your expertise here on this? Yeah, so, so what we try to do when we're talking with a really early age, early stage startup is sort of give them a roadmap for compliance. Like you're not gonna be Bank of America, 
in your third week. You're not going to spend all of your hard hard um, raised capital on compliance, but there's certain things that you either you can't get away with not doing because you're going to end up in jail, or 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 there's certain things that if you don't do them now, it's going to be really hard to reverse engineer when you've gotten a bit of critical mass. We had we saw an example this summer where a client had to go back and get new ACH authorizations from all their customers. And it was incredibly costly and complicated because they didn't have a right authorization from the get-go. So a lot of it is just road mapping out for them. Like, look, here, I understand your budget. We're not going to spend all your money on legal fees. That doesn't make any sense before you've proven if you have a working business. But look, these are the building blocks you need. And one area we see a lot of is a first choke point is when they go to the first ser Series A fundraising. And a lot of investors, like, Dan, who have a background in compliance, are going to ask them some pretty basic questions. And we've been on the side where we're the ones asking the questions. And if there's not a good answer, particularly now in a tightening environment, I think it's going to be a lot harder to fundraise. If you're a new startup, the CFPB is not going to be on your doorstep in the first six months, unless you do something crazy. But you are going to have to talk to investors and other people. And they, investors are experienced in this space, and they know what answers to hear. And they don't expect, may not expect the Cadillac, but they want to see the plan to how you're going to get to the Cadillac by the time your product reaches critical mass. And I think, you know, let's take that one step further. The, 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 the early stage company not only has to talk the compliance talk um, to investors, um, but they need to do it to their bank partner. Uh, Jessica, you know, if you put your, if you put yourself um, in the banker's shoes, how do, how do, what, what should be the expectations when you're talking to an early stage company that, you know, doesn't have endless resources and, you know, to, to, to Dan and Eric's point, you know, doesn't have every I dotted and T crossed, but at the same time has the right attitude and, and the right commitment. What, how does a bank make that work? Yeah, I think if it's a, if it's an opportunity that is amazing, I think that, you know, in the spirit of partnership, they need to work together. There's certainly ways through contracts and um, risk sharing that that the banks can do more on behalf of those of those entities, especially starting out until they can uh, get revenue and uh, be able to build out their their compliance and risk teams. Awesome. Well, look, guys uh, and Jessica, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a challenging topic, and I'm 100 percent certain that we'll want to revisit it, um, you know, in the coming months because things do have a tendency to change. So, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, for everybody who uh, who's listening or watching, uh, we're going to put the links to all of that regulatory guidance that we were talking about um, in the show notes, um, where you'll be able to um, read it for yourselves as well as uh, the contact information for Dan and Eric, who, who are very much subject matter experts. And, and of course, Jessica and I are always around too. So thank you very much and uh, really appreciate you spending time and, and happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of FinTech Brews and News. Keep up with all the content and cool stuff happening at Falls FinTech and Central Payments by checking out our website, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our next episode. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.